Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to another in another installment in Summer in the Shadows, which we've been kind of limping along here. A lot of you listeners have probably noticed there's been a, a few weeks here and there where we uh, haven't quite kept to the theme or maybe even haven't had a show at all. But we are happy to say swinging into full gear just for this final month of the Summer in the Shadows. And, and here we are. We've got a new episode, a return guest. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll just get right into the introduction. It's Marianne Labate. I know you were you were just on. Um, well, I mean, it was like, I think by the time this comes out, it'll have been like nearly a month since you were on. But in terms of how many episodes are out, you were just on. But uh, we had such a fun time talking that as soon as the episode ended, we like started talking about you coming back and getting you in for one more time before the summer ended. Um, not that you can only be here in the summer, but you know, you, you like to talk about noir and you're very knowledgeable. So I wanted to get you in before this theme ended. So welcome back. I'm sorry. I, I'm, uh, I've introduced you and I haven't allowed you to talk, but welcome back that's to the cool. show. That's, that's quite all right. I'm happy to be back. I'm always happy to talk about noir, as you know. Oh, yes. So uh, how have things been going for you the last, uh, last few weeks? Are, are things over at Make Mine Film Noir uh, chugging, chugging along smoothly? Yes, they are actually. I've got a lot of uh, films in the queue to watch. And um, I just posted another blog fairly recently. And I'm uh, looking forward to talking about noir with you today. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm really looking uh, really looking forward to this. It's going to be fun. We've got a couple of um, we've got a couple of great films that are going to be maybe like a little bit kind of minefields <laughs> we'll, we'll see how they go. it could be it could be a little bit like we we could go off on some tangents on these but it'll be fun to to navigate this will be good but yeah as for me we talked a little bit about it before i was recording i am getting used to work as evidenced by the fact that the the podcast is hopefully the the train is writing it <laughs> the train the boat is writing itself the train is getting back on the tracks and we're going to be pumping out these episodes weekly again um, but I'm getting used to a schedule now, and uh, I, I've actually had a little bit of time to watch movies, which I, I have not had for a while other than this podcast. I, I basically just, I just watch things for the podcast these days. <laughs> yeah, like, like Equilibrium is returning, so everything's doing good over here. Uh, and it sounds like things continue to go well over where you are, so that's, uh, that's all good. Well, I, I have to say I admire your stamina because doing a weekly podcast is pretty impressive. Um, I, I blog every other week and I find that to be a lot of work. So the fact that you can do it every week or try to do it every week is pretty good. Yeah, well, it, the thing that I most want to do 
is keep the schedule consistent, which is why sometimes I'll do episodes where it's just me and a friend talking for about an hour about a couple of topics that don't have anything to do. It's like not us doing, it's not us discussing two movies. It's just us. It's putting something out there because I want to keep the podcast going. Yeah. But to that end, um, I, I have thought about, and I may end up doing it in the future uh, after, you know, Halloween, which is of course my season. Um, I, I may end up putting the podcast to bi-weekly uh, for a little while, just because it is, it is difficult to try and schedule, you know, a, a couple of hours to talk. That's the easy part. And then editing and watching the movies and, you know, trying to do some sort of research and writing notes. Uh, it, it may improve the quality of the show if I go to a every other week format, but we'll see how, we'll see how I feel um, after the end of October. Well, you can, you can be consistent about that too. I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious though, why did you pick weekly? Just out of curiosity, I mean. It was during, like I started this last October and I hadn't worked in like over six months and uh, I didn't know when I was going to be going back to work. And it just seemed like I can do this, this is easy. And at the time it was really easy. I was watching a bunch of movies. I would record at one point I was, I recorded an episode a day for a week and got ahead. And I was like, I can keep this up. And it's just like, now I'm back to work. And, you know, a large chunk of my time is no longer just sitting at home on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. And so, cause it would, it was also, you know, a quarantine project. I'm, I'm going a little stir crazy at home and not really, I like staying home, but you know what I mean? Like I just got a lot of time and I might as well work on it. So that's, that's why I chose weekly. Oh, okay. I, I was wondering because I, I think at the beginning I was trying to do weekly or even 10, every 10 days. And even 10 days, I just, I, you know, just watching one movie and writing about one movie, I just couldn't keep up with it, to be honest with you. Yeah, when I was blogging, which I haven't done in years, I did, I did struggle with how to keep a schedule. Like I, try, I tried so many ways to just keep myself working on it and also a consistency to things coming out. Um, there was a period where I used to try and write something every day and that would last a couple of weeks. And then I'd be like, okay, I'm going to try and write something every week or something like two things a week. Or I would like say, okay, Monday is my day to do this. And then Thursday is my day to do this. And that's what I'll, and I, I really could not keep up with any of it. I just could not get that balance to, or that, that work life balance to include my blogging in any like regular way. It's difficult. And, and and I'm very enthusiastic about film noir, and I found it difficult. I for now the, the every two weeks seems to be working for me, but it's still a lot of work. <laughs> still a lot of work. Well, I used to bus to work every day, and I would write on the bus. I would I would say, okay, I'm going to write something for the blog, and I would just ha like handwrite it with the idea that I would go and put it and type it up to the blog. But then I would also find sometimes that I would handwrite stuff and just never get around to typing it up for the blog. <laughs> like I would have that feeling of like, I've done that already. And like my, like mentally, I would just have that feeling of accomplishment of having written something, but nobody has seen it. It's just sitting in a notebook somewhere. <laughs> but at least you did it. I did. I did. Um, 
so anyway, let's uh, let's kind of get into the movies here. As I said, we've got we've got some uh, we've got a pair of uh, a pair of strangely timely films. So, but let's let's go and get into that. We're going to be talking right now about 1950s Panic in the Street from director Elia Kazan. Herewith recorded is the story of a silent, savage menace. How for three days a great American city found itself outside the United States of America. The events, incidents, and emotions of the people who were a part of it, who found time running out as they looked into the face of mortal peril. I knew you guys were crazy. Wait a minute, Neff, wait a minute. Wait, for what? Somebody else to die? You two men, listen to me. I've got something to tell you. Well, what am I supposed to do? Just sit here and watch? Listen, doctor, I'm taking a chance that you may be right. You take a chance that I know what I'm doing and let me do it. As a matter of fact, you'd help us both out if you went home and went to bed. Okay, I'm not going to argue anymore. And I'm not going to wait until the facts penetrate that thick skull of yours. There just isn't that much time. When the body of an unidentified man shows up on the New Orleans waterfront with two bullet holes, the case is instantly complicated by the fact that the man had apparently been dying of the pneumonic plague. It's a race against time as a U.S. public health officer, played by Richard Widmark, and a police captain, played by Paul Douglas, must find the dead man's killer before he becomes contagious and begins a deadly pandemic. As I said before the break, this movie is a bit of a minefield for us to discuss. Uh, it is eerily prescient right now. There are a lot of moments that I had very conflicted feelings about during this film, which I had not had the first time I saw this. Um, and I, I mean, I'm sure we're going to be discussing all of this, but I... I really like this film. I watched it once before on TCM, probably about a decade ago. Um, I did buy the the Blu-ray a little while ago, and so this gave me a, a chance to finally open and watch it. Uh, I don't know about you. I have a bad habit sometimes of buying stuff that I'm just like, I cannot not have this, and then it sits on my shelf for a little while. Uh, that this was, to me a lot. <laughs> yeah, this was, this was my second time watching the film, but uh, how about you? What's your history with this one? I saw it about three years ago and wrote about it for my blog about three years ago. And at the time I had discovered The Killer That Stalked New York, which uh, we will be talking about later. And another movie, I can't remember the name of it right now, um, but it was, um, uh, it, it was a similar theme, but not about a disease. It was about a man who, um, unwittingly is carrying around radioactive material with him around Los Angeles. And uh, the, the police have to find him before he um, radiates too many people. <laughs> oh, gosh, what is that? Because it makes me think immediately of Kiss Me Deadly. It's not or, that film. Or Repo, good... or Repo Man. <laughs> but I, yeah, what is that? I can't, okay, I'm sorry, I completely interrupted. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I wish I could remember the name of it. I wrote about that one too. But all at the time, all of them seemed related because of that, um, the, the panic, the sense of epidemics, a couple of them caused by disease. And the, the other was caused by the threat of nuclear contamination. 
at the time too, I found another film called 80,000 Suspects. Uh, that's an English film. I've never been able to find that anywhere um, to watch. Uh, it's possible. It's just was never very famous. I never was, I'm sorry, go ahead. Which one? 80,000 Suspects. I've never heard of that. Uh, I found it because I, I really actually don't know how I found it. At, to be truthful. <laughs> I must have been doing some research on the other films and that one came up, but not because it was like not on a library, my library's database or anything like that, because I would have borrowed it. So I don't, I'm not sure exactly how I found out about it, but I've never been able to find a copy of it. Um, but that Panic in the Streets, I, actually, I wasn't sure I was going to like it at all. I don't know why that that was. I, I must have had some kind of preconceived. Sometimes you you see these things, or you remember them from childhood, you, or you see trailers, and you and you, you get a preconceived, or at least I do sometimes get a preconceived notion like, oh, that doesn't sound very good. But I watched them anyway because I learned that that's a really bad attitude to have about something I haven't even seen from beginning to end. And um, I invariably end up liking it because I seem to like all things film noir. <laughs> and Richard Widmark is just, I think, fantastic in this film. He's very good. He's very good. He's got a really good um, or interesting relationship with his family, which you only see for a couple of scenes. Uh, he, he, he has a, like a real great modulation of his... Um, his reactions like you you can see him get getting more and more harried and then kind of like uh calming down and becoming a little bit more resigned at other things and still like it just in, in his reactions and how he he acts with other people and in his his looks and his facial expressions you can see uh, like the toll that this is taking on him because he, he spends a couple of days without sleeping and then he gets like a little a little bit of sleep on a cot on his porch at one point yes um, but yeah he's great in this i i think the entire cast in this is good and we'll talk all about them there's there's um i mean there's jack palance we haven't even talked about yet <laughs> i didn't even wow. mention him in my my intro and zero mostel in a kind of a small role the two uh, well J jack jack palance is He's one of those, I'm, I, sometimes I wonder if, if, if we're really seeing him acting or he's really like that because he seems so effortless as Blackie in this one. He, he really just seems to inhabit that role. I don't know why I think that. He does play a lot of odd characters or he has in his career. Um, and he's no stranger to film noir, but Zero Mostel as his, uh, accomplice or his cohort or whatever he is in this he he's he really i mean he's a comedian right so, uh, well yeah i i mean every, i'm um, i and probably almost everybody knows knows him most or best probably from the producers i've never seen that believe it or not oh well it's i hadn't seen it until a couple of years ago either uh but um, I mean, it, its reputation is worthy. It is good. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, he was a comedian and singer, but I mean, he acted in a bunch of stuff. Um, not, not just comedy, but th this is kind of a, an odd role from, for what I know about him. Yes. I, I, I guess I haven't seen enough of his movies, so I don't know why I have that opinion. <laughs> anyway, yeah. he just. Well, okay. oh, he did have a, a live comic routine. Like he was a stage 
comic actor. I, I just, um, I think this is the only thing I've seen that he's in other than the producers. Well, anyway, he's really, but I think he's really good in this. All, all the actors are really good in this. They're kind of a surprise. You know, I was, I was very pleasantly surprised the first time I saw it. Now, the second time I saw it was just a few days ago. And it really, it, it, you're right, it hit me a lot differently this time, having lived through our own um, much more long-lasting pandemic. It's a dark theme for a dark time, really. And you're right, it, it's, um, I wasn't, I was, when I suggested the two of the, these two films, um, Panic in the Streets and uh, The Killer That Stalked New York, I wasn't sure you were gonna agree to, to talk about them because they, it is, uh, it, it's, they're just so, it's, it's very odd to watch something on this topic, even though it's from 1950, is it 1950? Yeah, yeah. Both of the movies today are 1950. It's just, it, it's odd to watch a fictional, even a fictional representation of the topic. It was for me anyway. Um, but I, and I found that especially true of the second film that we'll be talking about, um, The Killer That Stalked New York. But, but this one too, Panic in the Streets. It, it was, um, it's a good, it's a really good film and I recommend it, but I don't know how many people will enjoy it at this particular time if you know what I mean. Oh, I do. And that's something that I, I kind of grappled with because when, when you mentioned this, I, I immediately went, oh, that, that's great. I love Panic in the Streets and I haven't seen The Killer That Stalked New York yet. But then a couple of days ago, right before we started recording, I was like, oh, do, do we really want to talk about this? Because it's going to be impossible to not reference uh, like modern like it's it's going to be impossible to not reference what we've all lived through the past going on two years almost two years now a year and a half yeah um and that's something that i personally am kind of sick of like i talk about it a lot but i almost always edit it out of the shows these days because it, it's just something everybody talks about but also i'm kind of sick of hearing about the last two years in a way and so um I did have kind of a little bit of, of doubt, but then I was like, no, this is going to be interesting. These are good movies. Um, there, there will be interesting things that we can discuss about them. And not, I mean, not the least of which is of course, the fact that this is about trying to stop a pandemic and we're, we've been living through a, a pandemic for quite a while now. Yeah. Well, I guess you could say it's hopeful that they, that in the pack in the streets, they really get through it rather quickly. Well, they get, they don't want, they don't just get through it really quickly, but they, they like stop it in its tracks. The, the one guy in the beginning has it and he's, a, he will die from the plague if he hadn't been shot. Um, Cause we're introduced the beginning of the movie is he's, he's leaving a, a poker game that Blackie and his, his guys are, are having and he's winning and they think that he's leaving because he's winning and he just wants to quit the game, but he's, deadly ill and blackie is like well i want that money back so he sends his goons out to kill him um so that's death number one there's another woman that dies because they're like we don't want the they're at, working at a restaurant they're like we don't want to be involved with all this it'll be bad for our business other than that that's it they inoculate everybody <laughs> like they stop it in its tracks they track everybody down it is um it is one of the things that gave me kind of conflicting feelings because it's just like it it's everything that we didn't do this time. And it's 
70 years earlier. Like, I, I don't want to, I mean, we're, I, I, it's, it's unavoidable. We're going to be a little bit political. Uh, we had been like preparing for this eventuality, a, pan, a pandemic, a contagion like this for literally a hundred years. <laughs> and in this movie in 1950, we get like an idealized responsible version of how that should have gone, how, uh, how our experience with a pandemic should have gone if everything went right. And now, of course, we've seen a year and a half of everything going wrong. But uh, yeah, like, what do you, what did you think about that? Like watching that in this film, that like how people reacted, I found that kind of sometimes eerie, sometimes very familiar, and sometimes it almost verged on the fantasy, <laughs> considering what we know now. Well, I, I, I'm struck, I was struck by how many reactions we've, we were hearing now, like that woman you referenced, her, she and her husband had that uh, Greek restaurant, I think it was, and um, at first they didn't even want to talk to uh, Richard Widmark, who's um, Clint, Clint, is it Clint Reed? Clint, Clinton Reed. Clinton Reed. And, and the, the police captain, they, they um, but they eventually do talk to them, but they won't admit that they've seen the man. And you, you're right, the, the, the wife was, she's already sick, mind you, we could, you know, she's coughing. It's obvious that she's not feeling well. She complains of a headache, but she refuses to talk to them. She, she, she's going to be bad for business. And that's an argument that, or a conversation that you could take from that period, 1950, and put it right into today. That's the same, the, the same exact argument, and or that people have made. And and you do have sympathy for them. You know, they're trying to make a living, and but in the meantime, she's really ill, and you know, it, it's a, it's. Now, I don't know. You said you had it on D, on Blu-ray, the film. Yeah. I, I watched it on DVD. Did you happen to take, get the audio, the, again, with um, uh, Alan Silver and James Ursini? Yeah, I because it looks like those people did a lot of the Fox line of noir. Yeah. Um, Eddie I, I, have it, okay. I have it, but I did, not wa I did not watch it with the commentary. Okay. Um, I did not watch it this time. I watched it like three years or listened to it three years ago. Uh, but in my notes, um, I may I observe that they, um, the two of them, show the story is just presented to us, to to the viewers, and the actors and the direct the director do not really take sides. They don't really say that. Um, well, especially with the with the reporter, I'm getting, sort of getting a little off track here. But they, you know, the director never says that the reporter's wrong or that Clint is wrong for the, the for the choices that they're making. He, they they just it's just the story is just presented and we observe. Clinton does not want word to get out because he does not want people to panic. Hence the title, the like the title "Panic in the Streets" is what Clinton is afraid of. It's nothing we actually see in the movie. Like there, there never becomes the point where we're seeing panic, unless you're considering like Jack Palance panicking as he's trying to run away from the cops at the end. Um, but he doesn't want to tell the public 
that it is the plague and that there's a possible contagion because he's worried that the people that are sick, once they get word of it, are going to run and they're going to spread it across the country and people are just going to want to leave. And that makes sense because it is localized. There's only a handful of people and we they can trace almost everybody that they can, came in contact with. They can reasonably inoculate against the plague and catch it in this town. The reporter also rightfully says, you should have told people it's the plague. That woman could have been alive if you had told her it was the plague, if the doctor that checked her out had known it was the plague and not just a cold. Um, and, and he's right about that. I can see, like the movie presents it as both sides are, are operating for the right reasons. Um, I personally, I think I fall more on the reporter's side just because, I don't know, I, it, it, maybe, maybe Richard Widmark stopped further death by keeping it contained right here in the city. But that like, yes, yeah, somebody's life literally could have been saved if Richard Widmark had just said, there's somebody out there who has the plague, but we are reasonably certain we can stop this from spreading. <laughs> Well, he he wasn't really reasonably certain. He was no. he, he was relying on the police captain to muster his forces and find the the people responsible for the um, for for the uh, card player's death at the beginning, and they don't know that they're going to find the, find those people right away. So he's kind of gambling. He's kind of gambling. I guess I could see in real life if he if they waited maybe 24 hours, you know, could they get any leads and then make a decision about letting letting it out to everybody. But the thing is, the only reason that there's the, the chance of it getting, you know, being publicized is because the reporter is sort of a pest, you know, he's in, in all the right places at the wrong times and he's listening and he's eavesdropping and he's sort of muscling his way in. So I, I can understand um, the police and the doctor's reaction is sort of like to push him away because he's kind of, he to, in their eyes, kind of obnoxious yeah. to them. He, but he kind he, of is, like you get that. Like as an audience member, I am kind of like, ah, oh, get this guy out of here. He's like screwing everything up. It's, it's just kind of like after the fact that I'm like, well, no, he he was operating. He was right as well. They both were right in a way. Yes. Yes, that's true. There's this, that, that great scene later in the movie where the mayor and his assistant, Clint Reed, the police captain, the reporter who's just been released from jail. They have that discussion about, um, you know, thinking locally versus thinking globally and, and what, what can they do? now versus later and it's a great discussion because it I, I mean when i first saw the movie it was a real it really intrigued me now that i've lived through the pandemic for you know what 18 months or whatever i feel like i've heard that same conversation a million times in different varieties yeah, in different yeah. contexts and so now it's like well you know we just have to face facts in some ways we don't we, we're never going to have all the answers um, they didn't have all the answers in the movie and they don't have all the answers <clears throat> now. 
So um, as much as, as um, I personally have a lot of faith in science, my, me personally, um, I can see that, that it's still imperfect. You know, they're always looking for more information, better information, more surety, more certainty, I guess is the better word, in their information. And that's always going to be the case. It, I, in a way, it's the human condition. So on the one hand, it's kind of, um, you know, it's a, two sides almost of the same coin. And it's a relief to know that um, we have a lot of company. This has happened before and, you know, we, we should be used to it. But on the other hand, it's sort of depressing to think that we, we should be used to it and we don't really have all the answers. There's always going to be something new. I guess that's the other thing too. There's always going to be something new. We can have the answers today about COVID-19, but there's going to be something else. Yeah. I, I love that scene a lot. Although it feels a little bit like it's 1950. It is idealizing what our government agencies and non-governmental agencies feel about their um their duty to the public because richard wigmark's speech where he's talking about what we got to stop thinking about just our community because anybody now anybody that's sick could get on a bus and in 14 be hour uh, 14 hours be across the country i could get to africa tomorrow if i wanted to uh it isn't just one community or it isn't just a bunch of communities it is one community as a way to describe how a, a pandemic would spread across the world, which is something that we've all gotten used to this last year and a half, where, yeah, it's like there aren't borders to this sort of thing. Like people move around and if somebody is sick, I mean, if somebody is sick in India, then somebody in New York could also be sick, right? It, it's um it's not just like one point and this scene kind of like in a way makes me a little sad because you get the mayor who is like look i agree with you we shouldn't we should like we we should not be like allowing this to spread outside we, we like i he agrees with clinton reed about um keeping it silent until they can track these people down so that they don't run and spread it somewhere else. But his statement was something like, uh, uh, he has a, like he, about the reporter, he's like, he's got a right to report about it, about all this, however he feels. And it, it may not always be for the best, but I have to respect his right to do that, which is something you, you kind of feel like politicians in real life wouldn't do <laughs> or a, st a sentiment politicians wouldn't always hold um i guess i just feel like so disappointed <laughs> this last year and a half in in our reaction that we're we're still viewing it as like as like it's just our battle and like saying our as in like our state our city our community when it's everyone else like we're we're, we're still like kind of not sharing vaccines with areas in the world that need it just as much as we do. And we're letting a lot of ours go to waste because people here will not get it. Like I, I'm, I'm go moving all over the place here and I don't quite have a point that I'm making. So I'm just rambling, but when, like there's a scene earlier 
before he announces to anybody that it's the plague, where he immediately has everybody that's been around the body inoculated against the plague. And it's a bunch of cops and the cops are all like, hey, I don't need to do this. Uh, like, I don't want to do this. And the captain says like, and, and well, the captain backs up uh, Richard Widmark in saying like, I could have you quarantined for 10 days if you don't want to do this by saying like, you guys, this isn't the Boy Scouts. You have to do this. Um, and yet, and like, I don't know what it's like where you are, but here in, in LA, we're seeing the police, the majority of the police don't want to get vaccinated. The majority of police don't want to wear masks. The majority of like the police, like the, um, the sheriff and the police chiefs are, are on, on the news saying like, this is not something I'm going to make people do. We're not going to enforce any of these mask mandates. Like if people aren't wearing masks, we don't, we're, that's something you guys are just going to have to deal with. So like to see institutions kind of honor their duty to the public. It, it like, I liked seeing it in a movie, but it also kind of made me sad. <laughs> well, I, now that you point that out, I think that was a little bit unrealistic, actually. Um, I think that scene was there. I think the mayor's speech about the reporter was, was meant to be there to show all sides of the argument. But I, I kind of agree with you that I, I really don't think that politicians react that way because I think, especially in the you know, last few years, but I think they've always had an adversarial relationship with the press. Oh yeah. That's, that's part of the, the uh, seems to be part of our democratic um, institution, you know, just the way it's set up. The press is there to um, be a watchdog for um, politicians. So they've always been sort of had a sort of adversarial relationship. Um, although the mayor at that point in the movie is talking about that reporter's individual rights. So it's not like the press versus politics. It's more like he's trying to uphold law and order and he has no right to, to keep the reporter in jail because there are no charges against him. I mean, he's, that's sort of a political, if that, if word got out, if the reporter or his um, employer published that, that would be a big mess for the politician. Uh, at least that's the way I, I, maybe I filled in too many details <laughs> um, in that scene because none of that is shown. I, I'm just guessing that the, the mayor wants to avoid a political mess too, in oh. addition to letting the reporter go. Most definitely he does. Most definitely. So yeah, maybe his speech there is a little self-serving, like saving face, where, where he's saying that instead of just admitting, like, if I do this, then, uh, or if I allow him to stay in jail, then it's just going to be a political nightmare for me. So <laughs> right. maybe, maybe that, 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 that could be. I also was just thinking about the era, 1950, post-war kind of like idealization of of uh of americanism kind of like um which of course isn't always a sentiment of noir noir is kind of like about the black heart at the center of things but this is a movie a noir that i think is like very hopeful it, it is a it is a brighter outlook on the world than a lot of film noir does well, uh, yeah, it is actually because they it ends with a conversation between Clint and the police captain in, in the captain's car. And uh, the, the police captain is giving Clint a ride home. 
And actually that, they talk, before Clint gets out of the car, they talk and uh, there's another call that comes in over the radio and the captain gets really, he start, he's starting to get worked up about what he has to do to deal with that call. And, yeah. and Clint is like, well, you know, what are you getting so mad about? But the thing is, he, he and his wife had that conversation earlier in the movie, but his wife was directing the question at him. So the implicate, you're right, it is very hopeful on a personal level too, because if the implication is that Clint has learned something um, about himself throughout the movie. And at the end, he's learned enough about it to point it out to the police captain. That, that's my guess. Now, um, it's possible that um, James Orsini and Alan Silver pointed that out on the commentary, and I'm just repeating their words. <laughs> I, I, I listened to their commentary about three years ago, so I, I don't know. But I, I, it really struck me the second time that I saw the film. I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's the, the words are different, but that's kind of the same speech that his wife gave, gave to him earlier in the film. So I, and then uh, we have to talk about the relationship between him and his wife a little bit, because it, it is, does come up in the film. Yeah, we, we um, uh, really quickly before we move on, that 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 scene that you're talking about, uh, the captain is getting worked up because he's dropping off Clinton Reed at home, and they have just caught Jack Palance, and they they are they seem certain that they have stopped the the pandemic before it began. They, they've caught everybody that could have had it. Um, and they're both like coming down from probably one of the more stressful moments in their careers, either of their careers. And a ra the radio call that comes in is they, they're sending a squad car. They're requesting a squad car about a, do a barking dog in somebody's yard. And the, he's like, they're sending us. Why are they sending us out? Why are they wasting time on this? And he comes over and he's like, hey, what are you getting so upset about? Which is such also like would you rather be chasing down somebody who's spreading the plague? Like, come on, be happy that you're dealing with something as, as boring as a barking dog that you, you can relax during this. Uh, it's a good moment. It's like, it's, it's not quite the end of the movie, but it's a, a good moment. And we'll get, you're right. I want to talk about the relationship with him and his wife, but I also just want to say, which we should come back. Um, the relationship between Richard Widmark and uh, Paul Douglas are it, and the way it, it grows through this movie is one of the uh one of the pleasures of this movie like just seeing their their relation turn relationship turn from completely adversarial to like grudging respect to friendship at the end like they they make it they say that like they're like hey keep me in your thoughts like kind of like keep in touch don't be, be a stranger now thing as a part which is completely opposite to how they begin the movie Oh, oh, definitely. Um, but but again, we can come I, back to that if you want to get to the wife. Let's talk about uh, Barbara Belgetti's as the wife. Well, uh, no, I just wanted to point out, but in a way that that's uh, mirrors Clint's relationship with his wife, because uh, not that they were adversarial at all at the beginning, but they um, they come to an understanding um, about having another child, about the the, the his. Clint's quickness to anger. And um, so he makes progress on the home front and he makes progress with the police captain. I thought it was a very nice parallel construction for the movie that had 
Um, and I think that's why I like Panic in the Streets. It's It doesn't just focus on the noir aspects of the criminals and the pandemic. It shows the a little bit of the lives of the individuals that are very closely entwined with solving the riddle of the pandemic. Yeah, I agree. I, that, that is a, a nice um, a nice mirror because you're right, he doesn't have any sort of adversarial relationship uh, with his wife, Nancy, played by Barbara Del Geddes, as I said. He seemed like a very, very good father, even though he's not really there. Oh, there's that, that weird scene at the moment after he's dropped off by the captain where he's checking his mail and the neighbor who is a painter who has been teaching um, Richard Widmark's son to paint comes up and is like, hey, you know, you've been gone a couple of days. You should spend more time with your family. And he's like, kind of just like chuckles at him. He's like, yeah, I'll get right on that. Like, it's such a, like, it's such a weird little character thing for him from that as well, that like we're shaming him now for being an absent father after he's just like saved the world from uh, the next coming of the mnemonic plague. Um, I, I only say that's kind of like a weird, a weird thing. Cause obviously the movie is making a little bit of a joke out of it, but that character just isn't part of the movie. We see him once in the beginning and then at the end he comes over and has this speech about how Richard Widmark needs to be a better dad. Uh, but he seemed like a very devoted family man, just like gone a lot for work. Yeah, the character was almost superfluous in a way. Yeah, and he, he's got like such a smarmy look. It's, it is clearly meant to be a little bit of humor, like a little bit of uh, like, uh, just like a little yeah. bit of a snide remark, but it's so, it's almost out of place in everything we've seen up till that point. Yeah, I think if the movie were made today, he, that, that painter would have been like a child molester, I hate to say. Uh, you know, I, I thought about that because he, they had the description of him or the description where the dad, the, so the movie opens and Richard Woodmark is trying to paint a, a, a chest of drawers and his son is like telling him you're doing it wrong. And like Mr. What's his name? Mr. Redfeld, or I think um, says that this is how you do it. And he's like, here, I'll show you how. And then he talks about how the guy lives down on the corner and he's been teaching him how to paint and he's got train sets in his house and like all this stuff. And I did think like, well, that's really weird. Like this is 1950. I had to remind myself like before the 1980s, it would not really have been considered that bizarre even the 70s i guess that bizarre for some kid to kind of befriend an adult in the neighborhood you know but certainly that would not happen these days these days that that would be a bunch of red flags at once well you know it's now that you're talking about it i i have to say i i think back in the back in the day even back in my day we were out in the neighborhood a lot more and we knew our neighbors personally and it, it wasn't odd, like the, the old guy next door to us used to give us ice cream in the summertime. And, you know, the, you know, maybe I'm being a little too hard on the poor painter who's really kind of a superfluous character anyway. <laughs> but I have to admit, you know, we're, I'm watching war and I'm hearing this kid talk to his father and his father feels a little inadequate. And I'm thinking, you know, this, this could be a whole nother movie. <laughs> And I, it's not even in the script. I don't even know why I brought it up, really. Oh, <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. But I'm going to say, even in my 
youth. And I, I mean, I, I, I was born in the late seventies. So I was a kid through the eighties. And I remember as a kid, like I would live in areas where like, my, well, my, my stepfather was a, um, uh, was a carpenter and we would travel around the States, uh, in the States, but around Alaska, um, just for, you know, a couple of weeks here and there, a couple months here and there, just while he's, he's working, uh, on wherever there's, you know, stuff being built. And I would be in these new communities. And I remember I would get up on a Sunday or a Saturday and I would just go out and wander around the neighborhood and I would knock on doors. This is maybe a sad, sad memory, uh, but I would knock on doors and ask if there were kids there that wanted to play because <laughs> I didn't know anybody. And I think about letting my kids do that. I'm like, oh, hell no, I'm not going to let them do that. I'll walk around with them, but I'm not going to just let them walk out on their own. I don't know where they are. And they're going up to strangers doors and asking if there's anybody they can play with. Um, but I, I just think like public attitudes have changed so much that there is stuff in these old movies that that looks really suspect, but nobody, it would not have been on anybody's mind at the time. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. It's, it's, it's just a product of modern times and me watching it in 2021. Yeah. Uh, you, you can cut all that out if you want. About oh, no, why? It's fine. If you want me to cut anything out, I will, but I think all of that was fine. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, we'll see how the time is. If I'm going over time, maybe I will, but I, I think it's fine. Okay. Well, the only reason I say that is it's not not because, you know, I want to change my mind about having that impression. It's just that um, it's not in the script. I mean, there's nothing in the script that would lead anybody to believe that there's anything wrong with the painter. It's just me watching noir in 2021. It just seemed, and for and the reasons you said too, at the beginning, when he's talking about the train, the little boys talk about the train sets and everything. You're like, yeah, uh-huh. Well, <laughs> I think it's a, reasonable. I think, I think it's a reasonable reaction. A lot of people these days would have watching. Yeah, I have to remind so. myself. But we should go back and talk about uh, Richard, uh, Clint Reed, Richard Woodmark and his uh, relationship with his wife. Yes. Um, the, another thing too is uh, maybe this sort of relates to horror and a little a little bit because it reminded me that I wanted to make this point. The second time I saw the panic in the streets, I was shocked in a way uh, about the violence in it. And by that I mean that scene where Blackie and is it Fitch, Zero Mostel and um, Jack oh. Palance. Uh yeah, Black Pal Blackie is Jack Pounce. It's uh, uh, Vince Poldy is the other person, but Tommy Cook is the actor playing him. Okay. Well, they're taking him out of his tenement. Um, he's very sick. Oh my God. Oh yes. Yeah, Poldy is sick. The yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. You, I, oh my gosh. Yes. And Jack Pounce and Zero Mostel are, they, they've, some, you know, quack doctor has decided he, that he's going to treat him himself. He doesn't really have plague. They mentioned plague in that scene where they're in the in the room where Poldy is, but they um, the doctor dismisses it and um, they start to Jack Palance and Zero Mostel start to to carry Poldy out on that stretcher and they're going down those wooden stairs and they must be two or three flights up and when Clint Reed shows up and says you can't move that that man he's got the plague they just toss him over the railing yeah they don't even toss him they like flip him forward and so he falls it, it's so it, 
it's a stunt off camera. Obviously, there are pads for the guy, but the actor, the way he falls forward over the railing, it looks so painful. Uh, yeah. It looks like that's going to hurt him no matter how he lands or no matter how much padding is right out of the camera frame. It, I'd seen this movie before and it was surprising even on the second viewing because it's just it's it's so unexpected it's such a weird thing they do well you know in a way i guess I mean, the second time that i saw the film I, I mean it was shocking but it was like fitting for jack palance's character if you know what i mean oh yeah not, yeah. not so much zero mostels but jack palance's character and the, the thing that i noticed so so much more this this time when I when that scene during at the end of that scene is the nurse who rushes over to Poldy's body on the ground and she goes, oh no, his neck is broken. So they make it very clear that man would, I mean, he, he's not gonna have a chance to die of the plague. He's dead on the ground right there. And it's, um, I mean, I don't know why I find it so shocking because it's noir, right? And Jack Palance is the character that he is, you know, he's a bad guy from the very beginning. I mean, he kills that, is it Kolchak, the card player at the very beginning, when, when they, when he and his gang find him, he just shoots him down like a, like a dog pretty much. And, and they take the money back and they run off. They leave his body there. Or, or do they dump it? I guess they, they must've dumped they do, it. He or, tells them to dump it, but you, you don't yeah. actually see them do it. They are just starting to pick it up. And then yeah. it cuts to the scene of the, the, the police on the scene with the body and they're, they're right. digging it out of the water. Um, no, it's, it's a shocking, strange, very violent moment that is still shocking in this noir that's dark because in a lot of noir, even though the movies are, are kind of a, about darkness, the violence is often still fairly bloodless. It is, um, it is somebody shooting and then somebody at a distance falling over and you don't see blood, you don't see any impact, you just see like the gun, you hear the fire and you see somebody crumple. And that is a certain type of violence, but this is actually like, we're seeing somebody maimed, like pretty shockingly, like very suddenly. There's like no buildup to it at all. Yeah, I guess maybe, I mean, as much as Jack Palance's character, Blackie is clearly not a nice guy. I didn't expect that of, I mean, at the end of the movie, you think, well, yeah, it is fitting for his character. But at the moment it happens, I guess it, partly it's me. You know, I just you, I maintain kind of some kind of hope because you're watching the movie and you're the progression of it. You, you just sort of main, maintain some hope. That's, but then Jack Palance just dashes it all. Yeah, his, his character becomes so kind of there's, there's a point where you're thinking that he's a very like on top of it criminal because he talks about how, Hey, this is a business. I run and op operate a legitimate business. And he is a, like, he, when the body shows up and it's got the plague, the cops bring in everybody. It seems like they bring in almost every criminal in new Orleans, but they don't bring in blackie. And the point is, is that kind of blackie is off of their radar because he, he keeps everything very, legitimate and he's very composed and then at the end when the cops are there you think you would think like well hey this person doesn't have any record i'm just gonna like he, he should just be like all right i'm just gonna cooperate i'll get a lawyer i won't say anything like that's what you would think but he panics that's i, I mean i mentioned it earlier he panics and 
kills Vince and runs. And his run is so, at a point it becomes almost comical because the cops kind of just like wait him out because he gets to a point where there's like, well, he can't go anywhere. He's like climbing on that rope trying to get up to the boat. And it's it's like, what's he going to do? The boat is still docked. The cops are going to get up to the boat and they're just watching him from the dock and he's only a few feet away from him and there's nowhere he can go, but he's still trying to run. Um, it, it, it's just, it's kind of funny to me how composed he is for the entire movie. And then just like, it all crumples right at the end. Well, that chase, that actually that whole chase, I mean, it's very dramatic and I'm sure that's why they put it in the film, but the chasing was odd in, in some ways for me because he, Blackie, He's trying to escape with Zero Mostel's character, right? And I kept thinking to myself, okay, we've seen this guy now. He's killed the Kolchak at the beginning of the movie. He's tossed Poldy over a railing and broken his neck. And Zero Mostel and he are running through that warehouse at the end, um, trying to elude the police officers. Zero Mostel is complaining about being sick. He's becoming a drag on Blackie who's trying to escape, right? And yet Blackie doesn't do anything about that. You, you would think at that point, he would turn around and just shoot Zero Mostel. I mean, that's the way I'm thinking now because I've seen his character do such dastardly things. Or he would just leave him behind. Yeah. He does, he does keep picking him up and pulling him along. And it is it doesn't seem like he has any friendship with them. Or maybe, maybe he just wants a flunky to take with him. Like, uh, but I don't know. It does not seem like he has any any affection for uh, uh, Zero Mostel, uh, Fitch. Well, none at all. And in fact, actually, finally, by the time the police are, are getting close to him, Clint gets to him first. And they're under the, under the uh, dock, right up, they're walking on planks on top of the water. And finally, he turns around, he, sh- he, sh- he starts shooting. And he, I think he does clip, he clips um, Clint in the, in the arm. And he, I think he clipped Zero Mostel too. Zero Mostel is running off going, I, I, um, I want to give myself up. I'm done with this. I forget his exact words, but he's yeah. finished. He's so, he's so sick. He's so tired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a way, it's the way where I'm talking about it. it. It makes it sound comical, but when I'm watching it, I, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the, the treachery of it all is, you know, for the criminals, for Blackie in particular. I mean, you know, he's, it's, it's part of his character and it's, it's very believable there at the end. Yeah, I, I actually do find it a little, a little comical, just how the, how extreme Blackie's reaction is uh, and his aversion to dealing with the cops at all. Um, Just because he, he had, I don't know. I, I'm not going to say he wouldn't have gone to jail, but like just what we know of the legal system, he would have enough of a cushion. He's got no record. Um, he's a businessman, apparently with money, like all this stuff. Like it just seems like, like he should, it, he should have just given him up. And it's kind of funny to see him start flailing about instead of doing the thing that we kind of know he should just be doing from the beginning. Uh, well, I, does he, he, I think he knows that the police suspect somebody of killing, well, obviously they suspect somebody of killing Kolchak at the beginning, and he knows he's the one who did it. So he's, he may have a clean record, but he know he's, we know he's committed one murder and the police 
No, oh, yeah. has he, been he's definitely going to be arrested. He'll probably have this. But I, I just felt like, what does he expect he's going to do by escaping? Like he on foot, people know who he is. <laughs> like I, it doesn't seem like he's rich enough to like make a new life for himself somewhere else. I, I don't know. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's it's not what this movie is. I don't know. I'm I'm off on like I'm I'm just like off on conjecture right now but still i i i that chase goes on for so long i did start to think it, it was a little bit funny well there's room for, for conjecture that's for sure okay. i think i mean it's definitely uh, you know you i did wonder like what the heck are, did you know what the heck is this you know why is he running like this and dragging zero mostel along anyway <laughs> maybe we should get finally get on to um the wife, the poor wife. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. <laughs> We're neglecting um, I, her like Clint did. Uh, Barbara Bill Geddes. I really like her in this movie. Like, she's very, a likeable, very likable presence. And she has a really a, a nice, fun chemistry with uh, Richard Widmark. And they, they kind of have some like realistic, uh, realistic familial concerns with how they're raising their kid. <laughs> yeah, the, the business about the uh, admission to the, the quarter for the movies. Yeah, and she says that she's tired of being the heavy in the piece. Yes. And he because she takes the quarter away and he like before he leaves, he like gives it back to her. He's like, hey, why don't you be the one to give this to him? Like, like saying, like, why don't you be the good cop for once? <laughs> like that is such a relatable feeling that like at, you get to these points where one of you just feels like the bad guy all the time. And uh, or one of you just feels like the good guy all the time. That uh I felt like that was a nice touch. I felt like there, she's not in it that much. She's got a few, a handful of scenes. I think the beginning, the there's one in the middle and then the end scene, right? And I thought there was just enough shading to make it very like realistic and interesting. Well, there's that, there's uh, the bit about the laundry bill um, that they, they talk about that like two or three times in the film. And then there's that, that long discussion in the middle of the film where they talk about, um, you know, he would like to have another child, she's not so sure. And um, he's uh, got that angry streak and she addresses that with him. And I, I just found the, I, their relationship just uh, charming. It was like a charming, um, I don't want to say detour, but it was charming for film noir. And it seemed to me that, um, I don't know if this was the intention, but I've always heard that Richard Woodmark and uh, he met, like married um, young, he married his wife, he stayed married to her. He took care of her when she got sick. Uh, she died before he did. And um, he, apparently never cheated on her there were never any stories about him in the press and I sort of felt like we were getting a glimpse of Richard Widmark the family man on screen but we could only know that from the perspective of 2021 so I found it charming on a couple of levels that might not have been available or at least on one level that might not have been available to audiences in 1950 but it just it was nice to see him in that role because I do remember him from um, Kiss of Death. He plays Tommy Udo. Um, I don't know if you've seen that film with Victor Mature. Uh, I don't think I have. It's what was supposedly the film, the film that made him famous as a bad guy. 
he plays this um, maniacal, he's worse than Blackie, maniacal uh, criminal in, in Kiss of Death. And um, to, to see him in this role, it, well, maybe appreciate his acting abilities too. So may, maybe I um, saw it on many more levels than an ordinary audience member would, but it just, I found it charming for many reasons. And in and of itself, too. I mean, the relationship between them, they have good chemistry, I think, the two actors. Um, the conversations between them flow naturally, like you say, that the topics are, re are relatable. Um, I don't know, it just worked really well. Yeah, and there's that scene in the, in the middle when he comes home and he's, he's getting, he's changing uniforms and he's like, well, another one I have to, I have to have sterilized. Um, and he, he, he changes in the garage and he just puts on a robe and he goes out into his backyard and he's in a robe and he's in slippers and he's just like staring at the stars in his backyard. It, it's such a, like, it's such a nice silent moment in the middle of this movie. It's like a, a moment of pleasant domesticity that like kind of like feels good to watch as well. Uh, even though like uh, his wife isn't in that like shot. It's just like the, this, the moments of his home life look very pleasant in this. Um, even though they do have their arguments, they do, they aren't adversarial, but they, they do seem to like work through them, through everything. And there is very real affection. And I think they work well, well together, both the actors and the characters. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And, and in fact, I would love to be able to find out if they, they the two of them were in other movies together, because I bet they worked really well in other movies too, I'm guessing anyway. That, that it would have. One more point I wanted to make too, and this related to the movie, uh, City of Fear, I think is the name of it, where the guy has the, um, the main character has the um, Cobalt 60 that's, radioactive. That's actually um, what I was gonna say is that while I was looking this up, I was gonna say, oh, I found the name of that movie earlier. And I was <laughs> gonna tell you, it is City of Fear. And I think it's 1952, as a matter of fact. Uh, I, 1950 also. 59. Oh, wow. Okay. I did think about this actually really quickly. I wanted to think like Killer of the Stock New York and this were 1950. And I was thinking about it for a minute. I'm like, oh, that's very obvious. 1950 is just a couple of years removed from, uh, from polio out the like the very bad polio outbreaks. In fact, 1949 was the first time in a while there were zero cases of polio in, in uh, reported in America. But just a couple of years earlier, before this movie, I mean, the people making it would have lived through it, obviously, and most of the people in the audience would have lived through like hundreds of thousands of cases every year. Right. Uh, so I, I was like, I was like, oh, that makes sense. And now we're a couple of years removed for it. Here's some movies about our fear of, you know, disease and pandemic. Right. Huh. Um, another uh, point I wanted to make about. Um, Panic in the Streets, which is also true, happens to be true of, of um, City of Fear, even though that's not one of the movies we're really talking about today. But the, the, the way they treat, today we call hazmat material, <laughs> hazardous material. I know. I mean, it seems so like, they're never gonna be safe that way. <laughs> they're never gonna, they're never, you know, even the way he treats his um, contaminated clothes, he just wraps it up and puts a belt around it and stuffs it in the closet. And I'm thinking, now the whole garage is a hazmat area. <laughs> no, she makes that bet, that conch for him and they're just right next to each other. And he says a couple of times, like, you better not come close to me. 
but she's only a foot or two away. <laughs> and I mean, he's inoculated and probably she will be eventually too, but it's like, man, like these germs are going to be lasting on these surfaces for a while. I know. And uh, it was not smallpox. It's, it's a new, pneumatic Pneumonic plague. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I, pneumonic, I believe, is kind of like, I mean, that's, that's, I believe that's worse than bubonic, the pneumonic plague, probably just because it, it can be, as we've seen, confused with pneumonia. Like the, a lot of the doctors are like, oh yeah, it was pneumonia. Like she was just sick. Like it was a cold, but um, oh yeah. And they say pneumonic can spread like the cold instead of uh, instead of through rats or fleas. Right. Uh, th th that kind of reaction always kind of surprises me when doctors say, well, you know, I thought it was pneumonia because you can die of pneumonia too, right? Oh, oh yeah, definitely. Doctor. Definitely. Yeah, it's, I, it's still a pretty big, pretty big deal. Yeah. So, um, but I was kind of, um, even though they didn't mean it by any means in the, in the film, I was kind of chuckling to myself when the, uh, he, they were taking their precautions. It just, it seems so tame by today's comparison. Um, you know, especially when those doctors are there in the room doing the autopsy and it, they're just wearing rubber gloves. And it's not, it's not that scene where you see in a lot of movies where the coroner is eating a sandwich while doing the autopsy, but he starts to realize something's wrong and he just like keeps people away from the body. But it's like, man, you're not wearing much protective gear and you, there's a lot of people coming and going out of this room. And uh, it did, it did give me a little bit of anxiety, but I mean, I'm buying into the movie's reality and in the movie's reality, they were taking perfectly fine precautions. Yes, that's, that's true. I mean, according to what they knew at the time, yeah. um, that, that's for sure. And, and maybe, you know, I, ha I have to remind myself that at the time that, in 1950, um, plastics as an industry, I don't think had even really developed much yet. Um, and they wouldn't have had the materials that we have now. Yeah, that's I'm, true. I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have. So, um, you know, they took the precautions that they could, but things surely have changed since then. We have all this technology and people still don't want to use it today. I, I, know. I, I don't get it. <laughs> But anyway, I'm the, I'm the kind of person um, there. Well, we could talk about this more tomorrow, but there's a scene in The Killer That Stalked New York where the, the um, somebody's explaining how you get smallpox. And one of the character goes, I'm not getting anywhere near that person. I'm off getting the vaccine. And I'm like, that's me. <laughs> you know, I don't I, you know, it's the minute I hear that there's a vaccine available for something. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I want to be first in line because yeah. any, anything that can help me avoid it. Um, yeah. You know, like, why would I choose to be sick? I, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not that brave. You know, I, I, I don't want to weather that kind of storm. I just want to get out there and get the vaccine and, you know, still wear the mask. And, you know, I'm, I'm just a more cautious kind of person, I guess. Yeah, you and me both. I'm right there with you. <laughs> well, that's going to be it for our talk on Panic in the Streets. I really enjoy this one. Um, I think it, it goes kind of goes without saying. I, most of the movies we talk about on the on this show, I enjoy and recommend. But this is one. Um, it, it's a little bit of a, like kind of an outlier noir, where it, it like we were talking about defining noir. It's one that I could easily see somebody saying, like, or not defining this as a noir film. It, it does have elements, but it it also is 
a little bit of a, a procedural and a little bit of a thriller. Um, so it's, it's kind of an outlier, but it, I think it's a really great movie. You know, now that you mention it, I remember thinking, maybe this is why I was hesitant to see it. I thought, you know, how can this be in noir? It sounds like a disaster film. Ah, yeah. I don't have anything against disaster films, but if I'm, you know, trying to see every noir there is out there, but uh, but then once I saw it, I was, I don't know. It's such a great movie. I agree, it's a great movie. Um, even and you know. So that that's going to do it for this part of the discussion. But we're just going to take a break. You guys get to hear the trailer for the killer that stalked New York, and we'll be right back to talk about it. November day in 1947, without either gun or knife, one person was able to bring terror to the hearts of eight million people. What was she doing in Cuba? Smuggling diamonds into the States. No quarantine restrictions between Cuba and the continental United States. everywhere for you. I need medicine. Stay back. We need your help, Sheila. Keep away from me. Sheila. I came here to kill you. For what you did to me, to Francie. I'll help you back, Sheila. You can trust me. Stay back! Stay where you are! The Killer That Stalked New York, 1950. Now, Sheila Bennett is not having a good day. Not only is her husband cheating on her with her sister, but she's the subject of two investigations. The one she knows about is the Treasury Department, on her trail to find out who she's smuggling diamonds for. The one she doesn't know about is the effort of several public health officials racing to find out who is spreading smallpox throughout New York, a disease Sheila unknowingly caught while in Cuba, smuggling diamonds. Uh, this is your pick this week, and I had not seen this movie before. I watched it last night for the first time, and then I watched it again this morning. Um, I had kind of a, 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 an odd reaction to it because the, the first thought I had watching it last night is this movie is much cheaper, <laughs> it's much more cheaply made than uh, Panic in the Streets. It has an incredibly similar plot line uh, with you know somebody evading authorities because they think they're in trouble for a crime they've committed when really they're just spreading a disease around. And um, it, it's kind of, you, you can see the seams in this one a little more. Um, and I was a little bit disappointed last night on the first viewing. Now, I mean, disappointed is the wrong word. I, I just was kind of like, not, not really into the movie as much. And then I, I, I was like, well, maybe I was really tired. I want to give this movie another shot. So once I got up, I watched it again. And I really enjoyed it a lot, a lot more on the second viewing. It, the issues I had with it the first time are still there, but this is also a, a, a much 
in a way, a much darker movie than Panic in the Streets. It's certainly much more brutal. Like the, the results of the smallpox uh, outbreak are much more serious than what ends up happening in Panic in the Streets. But uh, we, we can, there's a lot we can get into. What's your history with this movie? Um, I saw it about, <clears throat> pardon me, um, three years ago for the first time. I think I mentioned earlier that I saw it, I, I sort of found it along with Panic in the Streets. At yeah, about yeah, the same yeah. Time. yeah. And, and then I saw it again for, to um, get ready for this podcast. And I found it, um, uh, it is more brutal for the reasons you mentioned, but I found it really raw because of the current pandemic. Um, that part where the doctor imagines <clears throat> empty streets. That really hit me because, you know, we didn't have to imagine that. We've seen that on television from many yeah. different cities. And, and the child, um, uh, Wal is Walda her name? I have a list of characters here because I know this one's more confusing. Um, are you, are you talking about the girl, the girl at the clinic that Sheila talks to in the beginning? Yes, Walda. Her, she has an odd name, Walda. Um, her, her, that, that whole situation with her family and what happens to her and her mother's reaction to what happens is, it was just really heartbreaking, I thought. It didn't, this, that, this film did not shy away from the consequences of a pandemic getting out of control. Um, and so it, it, it bothered me more, this seeing it this time around than, than the first time that I saw it. Yeah, it, it, it bothered me too, because well, Panic in the Streets, we talked a little bit about how Panic in the Streets kind of like played loosey-goosey with how the, the germs would stay on items like articles of clothing. And they're not really doing much to, to sanitize or sterilize anything. They're just basically saying like, oh, stay away from that and burning things. Um, this movie shocked me with how much it was, it would, it would occasionally show where the disease is being spread because of Sheila not knowing that she is that sick. Like, and, and then the results of that, they don't, they don't cop out and say, oh, we got to them in time. People die and people that you would not expect to die. A lot of kids die in this movie. Yeah. Um, Cause yeah. there's, there's Walda, but there's also a scene, sorry, I'll, I'll let you go in just a second. Um, there's a scene later in the movie where she like is stumbling around sick and she leans over and drinks from a public fountain. And then like, right as she walks away, a couple of kids come up and like are monkeying around, like pushing each other, trying to get the, and you see them just like put their lips right on the fountain. And it's like, oh no, like this movie is like, she is spreading disease and it is showing how it spreads in a way that Panic in the Streets didn't quite get to. Yeah, yeah. Um... And, and it works really well, I think. Uh, the one thing I thought was a little awkward was this, the claim that uh, um, the narrator makes that, oh, if the Treasury Department investigators and the Public Health Department investigators would just get together, they'd find her a lot faster. But there's nothing in the plot, like everything that she does, everything that she touches, th there's no way 
we we know what she's doing because we're we're seeing it as viewers. But there's no way that that um, until it actually happens in the in the plot where they can put the like two and two together because of what they have in front of them. But before that point, they really don't have any idea that she's the same person that the Treasury Department wants and the Health Department wants. Um, because if you see it from the two perspectives, or, or you try to just stay with those two, the two sets of characters, you can see that they would never have put put made that connection. But the like I wasn't sure. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm being too hard on the narrator. Narrator. Maybe the narrator was just speculating that why didn't they just come to, um, you know? Yeah, I I, I I do think he was just kind of saying like, um. I think he was just saying, like some some twist of fate is keeping like keeping us from joining forces when we could have like like. I think what he is pointing out is something that the movie does a couple of times where the paths of the investigations cross so closely. Like you see characters kind of going past each other at a certain point um, that there is obviously no way they, they would have thought to like stop and go, hey, what are you doing here? You're following the like, oh, that might have something to do with this. Like the movie isn't saying that there be I don't I don't think. I don't think the movie is criticizing them for not coming together sooner in their investigations. It is just showing that like they're so close, they're they're on such similar tracks, and they they cross paths throughout the movie. Um, it's something Panic in the Streets does too, where uh, it, Fitch right is brought in for questioning, and he's the one that would have pneumonic plague, and he goes after he's like released from the station, he goes to the bar and. You just see him in the background of the scene while Richard Widmark and Paul Douglas are talking about like how they're going to find whoever might killed the person whoever has pneumonic plague. And he's walking through the scene. He's like walking right up to them and leaving. And it's just like they're so close. But of course, there's no way they would know. Right. And this movie does uh, does a similar thing. God, this movie has so many similarities. It's amazing. They both came out in the same year. Yeah, I know it is. That's true. I, I guess I didn't think of them as being exactly the same. I, I mean, yeah, that. But I guess I, I, film noir is pretty typical from one to the other too, in some ways. I, I just thought of them both as as. Um, well, I, I didn't see them as identical in plot. Well, not identical, not, but they're not quite identical. It's just you know you've got the. The plot of the first movie is they're they're chasing down um, Jack Palance, Blackie, for killing, and and Blackie thinks Jack Palance thinks it's just because he killed a man, and it do, doesn't think at all about illness, right? And he, while he while helping to spread this illness, and in this one, Sheila Bennett is think she's only being chased down for smuggling diamonds and yeah, it never enters her mind that whatever she's got is anything more than like a serious cold it, it, it like it is the fact that she doesn't know she's spreading a disease that prolongs the amount of time she spends out out, out there like i don't know it, it, it just the, the the kind of basic setup is the same but they're not they're taking different tactics but they're they're very similar like setups 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I don't. I, I guess it shouldn't be too hard. And I, I, I guess I'm remembering that the narrator was like, you know, why don't they see this, see this? But they, you know, and they really couldn't have. But you're probably right. They probably he probably was just making an observation. But it still seemed a little heavy-handed to me. I thought the narrator. Yes. It, I, he he was kind of intrusive in well, some the, ways. The narrator is. Um... Dr. Wood, right? The narrator is supposed to be William Bishop? Or is it is it somebody else? I thought it was somebody else. Well, just some random. He yeah, maybe, because he keeps talking like he's involved in the story. I I, I the way he talks is as if he is, the story is happening to him or he is a part of the story, the narrator, that is. Yeah. And that's why I just assumed, and I really didn't think to met, you know. <laughs> compare their voices but they all kind of like i don't know i watched this on youtube so it wasn't like the best quality but it um i didn't like compare their voices but the narrator i i think is one of the more uh lacking parts of this movie in general like it, it's very heavy-handed it's also unnecessarily um uh, unnecessarily verbose at times. I had to watch the opening three minutes like five times because I was starting to fall asleep listening to him. And I was like, oh gosh, what's he saying? I, I, it took me a while to really get into it. And every time the narrator would come in and take over, it just like, it was like switching tenses and like talking about what's going on in a weird, um, in a weird remove while also acting like they're part of the story that I couldn't, I don't know. I didn't like it, <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I did like the movie. I just really didn't like the narration in this one. It, it wasn't the best use of narration, but this, the, the movie is based on a, on a, um, it's a fictional account of a real event, a smallpox outbreak in New York. You knew that, right? Yeah, I did. I did just read a little bit about this, that it, it was like a uh, story in cosmopolitan basically. Yeah. yeah. And maybe that's why they use the narrator. I, I, I sort of um, imagined that he was supposed to be the writer of the, of the piece. Yeah, that, that after I watched it the second time and I read about it, I that occurred to me, too. But I while watching it, I just assumed it was a doctor. I mean, the thing is, though, you shouldn't have to wonder that much about the narrator if you know what I mean <laughs> that's what I mean he was intrusive I kept thinking you know what who is this guy and and uh he was talking about this is my city and this was happening to my city and um I'm like well who, who the heck is this person and you know he's giving a lot of detail that, that like how did he know the, the details that yeah, so I, I know an omniscient about uh, an omniscient author about it, and and I and it was it was just odd. It was really it, it was odd to me. To yeah, I think the genesis of this movie from a real life event, um, specifically from uh, like that Cosmopolitan article, it's taking it from real sources where the panic in the streets was telling a completely fictionalized story. And this one is based on, it is trying at times to be based in reality, um, or not reality, but like the scientific knowledge of the day. Yes. And <laughs> yeah. 
I think the script in this one, and I feel, I feel like I'm going to be very harsh on this movie, which, which I, I want to reiterate, I did like. Um, <clears throat> I think the script in this one is very expository. It, it, there are a lot of scenes where characters are standing around talking about things that realistically they wouldn't need to talk about, but it is just to give us information. And sometimes it's not information that's relevant to the plot. A lot of the times it's it's information just about like what the processes of investigating an epidemic are. Like there's a, a scene in the beginning where they have to send out blood samples to be tested to see if it's smallpox. And uh, Dr. Wood, is standing in front of all of these doctors and nurses in the hospital. And he has a line where he says, we're an infectious disease hospital and we have to send our, our samples out to be tested elsewhere. It's such a wasteful system. And then an older doctor is like, well, as you know, there's only three testing facilities in America. It's a very complicated procedure to figure out what is like. And, and it's just like a bunch of language like that. These people wouldn't talk to each other like that. <laughs> like it's such, <laughs> It's a lecture in script form, and the movie kind of becomes that a few times. Um, I think it's pretty successful when it's talking, when it's dealing with the characters, but it, too much of it feels like it's it's kind of a a PSA or like a a um, like an industrial film that it would be shown in class that they then put a story into. <laughs> One of those like what not to do during a pandemic kids yeah <laughs> yes and um, thing number one not to do during a pandemic is put your mouth directly on the water fountain that is like multiple people did that and i uh, that there's a reason i don't use those things <laughs> <laughs> i i noticed that too because because sheila bennett does it too and i thought wow that did we used to do that, you know, back in the day? I mean, we as humans, I, you know, I wasn't alive in 1947, so I wouldn't know, but <laughs> it just seemed a little um, yeah. <laughs> weird. <you know? laughs> she must have been really thirsty. That was my first thought when she did that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I liked this movie a lot, but I think your, your points about how it's um, lower budget, really stood out for me because this time I saw Panic in the Streets and The Killer That Stalked New York, like almost back to back. And I think shooting on like location really helped Panic in the Streets. Um, New Orleans is pretty gritty and Richard Widmark is going from place to place. And it was really, um, it added to the drama, it seemed to me. Um, yeah, the, the locations and the actors in Panic in the Streets are, uh, I don't want to say anything about, about people in this movie, but um, there is a bit of like melodrama or melodramatic acting taking place here in this movie that is, is a bit more natural in Panic in the Streets. And I have to imagine it's because they're on like a location. It just kind of like doesn't feel as stage bound in that movie. But I think Evelyn Keyes as Sheila is terrific in this movie. I think she's really good. Um, but yeah, it is, it is uh, everything just seems a little bit like, like stage bound compared to how open and gritty Panic in the Streets felt. 
think um, Evelyn Keyes um, carried this film and I think they kind oh, I, I maybe it was Eddie Muller who did a commentary. I don't know. I, I know I've read some stuff about this film and somebody pointed out that, that this film really was a vehicle for um, Evelyn Keyes. And, and in fact, I didn't really recognize anybody else in the film. The nurse was familiar, that was Dorothy Malone. And the, the, her husband, Matt Crane, the actor seemed a little bit familiar, but really it was surprising. You know, there were a lot of bit players that I recognized, like Whit Bissell who plays her brother. Yeah. Actors who, who appear in other things. But I mean, nobody really, except for Evelyn Keyes, there was no one with any star power at all. And I re remember thinking, reading somewhere that um, the producers were kind of shocked that she, because by the end of the movie, she looks like she's sick with something, I think. You know, she doesn't seem to have any makeup on. She looks drawn. Her hair she looks is. limp. She's like sweaty and like flushed and her face, like it's black, it, it's black and white, but you can tell her face is like, <laughs> like looks both red and green somehow. <laughs> Pasty, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. But she, but, um, and they were kind of uh, upset because they, you know, this is their star. They didn't want anybody to see her looking like this, but the, you know, it's film noir and she's sick with small park, small, smallpox and she insisted on doing it real, you know, more realistically. And, and I think that really helps the film because if it if it had been any more melodramatic, I think it would have really kind of bombed in a way. Yeah. I like it a lot. I, I don't know why I like it as much as I do, but. Um... It's, it's interesting. There are like, there are so many side characters, particularly in the beginning that don't get much screen time they don't advance the story at all but they're all given a little bit of flavor they're all given their own motivations or their own personalities that are kind of outsized so they make a big impression and i think that's a lot of that's because we're not going to see them again but we're going to learn later that they died or that they unknowingly helped spread the the uh small pack the smallpox pandemic and i'm thinking like the the pushy milkman who who's trying to sell a certain amount of so he can get a gold button and he then like like he keeps like getting really close to people and insisting like hey can i talk to you about this can i talk and he he spreads smallpox because of that we don't see him much we see him like twice in the beginning and then later we kind of learn like like he helped spread it um there's the landlady who is just awful 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 like from the beginning we don't even know why it seems completely unjustified just how mean she is to all of her tenants <laughs> well actually um later in the film i'd forgotten this it turns out that um sheila bennett and her husband have not been paying their rent so she's been keeping an eye on them from the beginning because they, they haven't been paying the rent but that's not made clear till later in the film and, and it, I thought it was very odd at the beginning when she's keep like watching every move that Matt Crane makes. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. But it just, that seemed, oh, go ahead, sorry. 
no, no, you're right. And then there's the scene later, right when we learn that they haven't been paying rent. And I must have missed it again because I thought they were basically just late on rent. Like there's a certain point where there's a, a time leap in this movie of apparently a couple of days, I think, because suddenly like it doesn't seem like there's any passage of time, but suddenly Matt Crane has been missing for several days. Like Sheila doesn't know where he is because he just hasn't come home. Uh, Sheila's sister doesn't know where he is. And it seems like at, at this point when he go, when Sheila goes looking for her husband, that he's been gone for a couple of days and everybody knows it. Like the, the landlady is like, I haven't been seeing him around here very much, uh, much very often. So he's been gone long enough for other people to notice, but the movie has not let us know time has passed. I'm just assuming that a few days have gone by at this point. Uh, yeah, well, I- Unless I'm wrong, maybe I, I missed this again. No, I, I, I think you're right about that actually, because there's no, connection between that amount of time passing and then later in the film when she's when it's revealed that he's he's um, decided to wait 10 days because Moss the jeweler thinks the diamonds are too hot right now and he can't um, fence them basically or recut them the, the, um, the, the Treasury Department is aware of their existence and he gets Matt Crane to wait 10 days. And, but it's never made clear how, when he takes off, where he goes. I mean, I had the distinct, even though I've seen the film now, maybe three times, I had the distinct impression he was gonna come back for Francine, Sheila's sister. Um, but it certainly seems like maybe not because he doesn't even go to visit her. Like you would think he, he should just go home. Like it would not draw any attention to anything if he went back home and just lived like, like told everybody or, you know, told his wife, well, it's going to be a few days before he can take them. But instead he just like, he hides from everybody. Uh, and I, yeah, I'm not quite sure why. It, it is not clear in this one. Yeah, the passage of time for, for those particular days does seem a little um, condensed somehow, That, but they didn't really tell us is, is, is that the point in the film where they, the narrator comes in and starts telling, talking about all the people that are getting vaccinated and, and, and you know, one day's one million, two days, two million. Oh, oh, is that the same point in the movie or? I think so. It, I think it's about there. It may, maybe that's when we were supposed to know, you know, notice the time was <laughs> passing. And I, I have to admit, it kind of went over my head a little bit. Oh gosh, you're right. Maybe that is. Then, because there, there's also <laughs> one issue I have with this is that Sheila Bennett isn't completely hiding out, right? She's she's just trying to stay away from the police, but she's going out and about on the street. And the vaccination rollout and the fact that smallpox is in New York is all everybody talks about. And yet at the end, because she goes and she hides out with her brother who uh, manages a like a flop house. And at the end, when the police arrive and they say she has smallpox, the brother is like, smallpox? But no, she can't. She can't have small. And like, well, you know, there's a smallpox epidemic and she is clearly deathly ill the entire time you're looking at her. Why wouldn't you think maybe she is sick? <laughs> uh, they, they all seem like 
like everybody in the movie knows about smallpox except for the main players in the the diamond heist or diamond smuggling storyline they seem completely blindsided by it when it's announced well are they so successful at hiding that they avoid <laughs> newspapers i i don't know it seems it's it it does seem a little strange that she's that sick she, like it, it, she goes, it sort of, she sort of goes back and forth, you know. I, I guess the medicine that um, is it, Doctor Wood? Yeah, Doctor Ben Wood gives her at the beginning, helps her along, you know, sort of limp along occasionally. But then she gets really sick at the end. Well, she's okay. They try to explain that by saying that people who have such a a, a will and a drive to survive or to do something necessary can kind of like force themselves through something and I, I it okay I'll buy it for this movie because yes she is very sick sick to the point of fainting in the opening scenes of this movie and then this movie takes place over an indeterminate amount of days I'm going to say this movie is at least a week right it, it seems like it and a bunch of characters die because they came in contact with her and she does not seem to get noticeably worse until the end when the, she's run out of medicine. Um, and, uh, and yeah, they say, they do ask like, well, how long can this medicine keep her going? And then I think it's Dr. Wood answers that, that you know, like he, he, some version of that story about like mothers lifting a car off of their trapped children, you know, uh, people in extraordinary circumstances can have uh, tap into reserves of strength they didn't know they had kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. I, okay, I'll buy it for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked for her. I mean, she was determined. Although I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, she seemed determined to get back at, at her husband, Matt Crane. And yet, the, the, the scene I'm thinking of is when she's at, at she shows up at Moss's office and Matt Crane, Matt Crane is already killed Moss, right? And she is threatening Matt Crane with a gun. And then she says something like, well, I don't have to kill you. I'm going to report you for killing Moss. And so all along, she says she's really in love with him. But yet she's the drive she has is, I guess, to kill him because he cheated on her and, is, and took off with the diamonds and had no intention of sharing them with her. Yeah, and there's a line where it she has about how how she's well, we, we get the impression that she is feeling very embarrassed and disgusted with herself for allowing him to kind of like put her into this life of crime, like where where she's like you I can't remember how she says it, where she's like you I uh, like I was so in love with you. I even smuggled diamonds for you and, and something else I caught along the way. And I, I can't remember the exact line, but she yeah. does seem like she's she's finally kind of like fed up with him and also very disgusted at him and herself for going along with this. Um, anyway, I, sorry, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> well, no, that, um, but that kind of leads into my next observation in that in that same um, scene he tries to escape, right? He goes out on the ledge of the office and yeah. he's up on the ledge 
and she follows him out there. And I, I thought, okay, there, there was, um, I, <laughs> I kept thinking she had plenty of opportunity to push him. In fact, even though I had seen the movie before, I kept wondering, is she gonna push him now? Is she gonna push him now? I don't know why I blanked out on, <laughs> I've already seen the movie, I know what happens. But um, she, she seems to be still, she really still so in love with him that she's following him out on the ledge. And when he does fall, she's like almost destroyed. She screams his name. People gather out on the street outside, some to check on him, but they notice that she's up on the ledge. And um, Dr. Ben Wood shows up and he says, you know, she might be in delirium, but she really isn't before she goes, goes out on the ledge. So that, I th that's, that whole scene was very complicated. I mean, I know she goes back and forth. She loves him, she doesn't love him. She wants to kill him, she doesn't want to kill him. But I just couldn't figure out why she cr crawled out on the ledge after him. It's, that seemed. Yeah, I think there's some residual affection there maybe not maybe not affection maybe that's not the right word maybe attachment is the right word but um i i i felt that her decision to call the police on him was not mercy <laughs> like she says like they're gonna burn you for this and like she kind of like seems happy that he's done this to himself and maybe it's that she doesn't want to be responsible for killing anybody um because Ben Wood, Dr. Wood comes out to try and talk her off the ledge with what has to be the worst opening salvo I can imagine when trying to talk somebody down from suicide. When she is tottering on the edge and like seems like she might be about to just like go over, he says, Do you remember Walda? Do you remember the little girl you met in my and I met in my office? And she's having these like memories you you know her voice the kid's voice is on the soundtrack memories of the kid and then dr wood says well she's dead you killed her you killed her by touching her and it's like, oh you're trying to talk this person down <laughs> like what what are you doing uh yeah that wasn't it, that wasn't exactly an inspired speech no and <laughs> i i gathered that because she has just learned that she has smallpox and is infecting people throughout the city and has been i thought that well, obviously we're trying to kind of like, she's the heroine of the film. They don't want to make her too bad. Uh, or or maybe she just, is, maybe I shouldn't say it that way. She just isn't that bad. She's kind of been talked into this life of crime that she's been uncomfortable with through the entire movie. And I think for her killing is just a step too far. Like she was going to do it because she felt she was dying and he he's the he's responsible for her sister's suicide and all of her pain. And uh or he she blames him for that that he is she is going to kill him and then seems kind of happy that like oh i don't have to do it they'll kill you for me <laughs> like so i don't think it was mercy i think she really was like through with him at that point but she follows him out either just to kind of like i think either to make sure that he he gets caught or there is some attachment there because of course there would be you can't just like immediately turn off any sort of uh connection to somebody right away well, actually, I think you make a good point. I, I don't think she was looking 
um, you know, thinking that calling the police was mercy on her part, because if I, I, I'm not positive about this, but in film noir, on almost all film noir movies, they talk about getting the death penalty for, for murder. So she was well aware of what was going to happen if he got caught for killing Moss. Um, but I think you're right. The point is she didn't really want to kill him. And um, she never had any intention of killing the little girl, Walda. And I think part of the doctor's speech is that we want you to come in, come in off the ledge because we don't want you to kill anybody else. We want you to tell us where you've been, give us as much information as possible. They don't, they don't make that entirely clear when he, he's talking to her. Once she comes in off the ledge, there's that voiceover. I think it's the narrator again, talking about how he, <laughs> you know, she gives them all this information and she is made out to be the heroine because she gives them as much information as she possibly can before she dies. So I actually think now that we're talking about it, that that scene makes more sense than it did before to me because she really doesn't want to go through with killing her husband. Not yeah. really. I, I want to say, we've, we've talked about it a bit, how shocking it was to me when Walda, the little girl, died. <laughs> they, they, she's got whooping cough, and so they decide, the doctor's like, no, we're going to put her in a hospital to see you, you, you don't, you don't have to, like, you won't have time to take care of all the other kids and her, and keeping her in this small, cramped environment, overcrowded, is going to get other people sick, um, and the mother doesn't want to let her go. And, and that's the last the mother sees of her. And it, like when it's announced that she, the girl has died, I, I was, it, I mean, it was the sign for me that the movie was not kind of pulling its punches with how dangerous and deadly this would be. Um, but also it's really heartbreaking that mother has not been allowed to see her daughter and blames the doctor in a way that says like, you took her away from me. like. We could have taken care of her at home and you took her here and she's dead now. And it, it, I'm not gonna say it's like the most emotional bit of filmmaking, but it's very impactful, especially now, you know, we like in our daily lives and people just don't get to see their loved ones, <laughs> like, uh, like when it gets serious, like, um, and to see that in this movie from 1950, and a kid, no less. Like that, it just seemed very shocking to me. That that seemed, I thought, was really hard to watch the second time around. Now that, I mean, I, the first time I saw this film, we weren't in COVID nineteen pandemic times, and um, she is the mother is so upset. She calls the doctor a murderer, and all he does is stand there and hang his head. It, it really is very moving. It shows, I think, the limits of. You know, it's just this one little scene, but it shows um, the mother's anguish. It, you know, um, how quickly she turns on him, but it's in a moment of anguish. I don't think it's, um, you know, it's meant to show her in a bad light, but in any way. And it's also um, shows the limits of science. You know, he, he did, he, he says this, he did everything he could for her, but you know, does, it's a deadly disease and there's not, science can't cure everything. And I think people at that time 
had even less, um, not that they had less faith in science, but they had, there was, they had fewer tools at their disposal to like eradicate disease. I mean, even today with the COVID-19 pandemic, I mean, there are limits to how much science can prevent, cure, really any disease, including COVID-19. And they're doing the best that they can. It's, um, I guess it's, in a way, we sort of have to think of it as an art and a science, <laughs> um, I suppose. I, I don't know. But I thought that whole scene really brought it just right to the fore. Um, the whole, like all the themes of the movie seem to be in that scene, um, except for the criminal activity that, that Sheila Bennett is in. The themes of the movie seem to be in that one little scene between Dr. Is it Moss? And Sheila, um, not Sheila Bennett, um, Walter's mother. Yeah, there, this movie does also, uh, something else that Panic in the Street touches on a little bit, it does touch on the public distrust of vaccine rollouts. Um, in this one, the government agencies are much more like, I, I mean, it even touches on the same things where the, the governor is immediately like, I'm going to mobilize everybody to get us more vaccines and to roll out vaccination centers. At one point, they're like, we're running out of needles. And he's like, well, let's call some sewing companies. They make needles, we'll sterilize them. And he talks about like, let's get everybody vaccinated and I'll be first up. So he makes this big show of like, everybody needs to do their part. And he's on like press conference getting the, getting uh, vaccinated. Um, they even have the line where there are reporters there and the mayor asks the reporters, like, why don't you keep this out of the papers for a while? We don't want panic out there. And I, I thought like, yeah, that's kind of funny. Panic in the streets, like did kind of the same thing, um, but not as diplomatically. Uh, oh gosh, what was it? Oh, it, it touches on the public distrust. Even though like everybody's in charge is taking this seriously, I, I have to imagine because they see what the polio vaccine has accomplished in just a couple of years. And yet the public is still like, I don't need to put anything in. I'm not going to get it. There's even the talk at the barbershop where like, it's only two cases and they're quarantined. Ain't nobody gonna get it unless they brush up against somebody that's sick, which is dialogue that we had. It was everywhere in February of last year where they're like, that's only a couple of cases and they've already been found in quarantined. And it, it, I think you mentioned it earlier where it's the scene where the guy is like, well, say that person there got it. He walked past somebody that had it. And now he has polio and he does, or not polio, small, smallpox and he doesn't even know it. And he gets out of that chair and you go and sit down to get your haircut. Now you've got smallpox too. And that's when the barber's like, your next buddy wants to sit down. And the guy's like, not me. I'm going to go get vaccinated. So part of it. Yeah. it, that, it that, does, that guy is me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I remember you mentioned that earlier, but it's, this is part where it does kind of also feel like a, like a school film strip that we're watching, like do your part kind of thing. It, it is interesting to see that like, you know, 71 years ago that this is still you know, going on or this is going on and this is where we're at. And it's even worse today. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, um, the first time I saw the film, I was really struck at how um, it reminded me. Well, of course, at that time, when the first time that I saw it, I was thinking of there was a flu pandemic one year. It wasn't a pandemic. It was a flu I guess I'll call it outbreak. People were, there was a strain that more people were getting the flu. There was the Zika virus. 
Ebola was um, had been in the news recently. I'm old enough to remember the HIV um, before anybody knew what it was. We're talking in the early 80s. Um, people really were panicking about um, this new disease that was going around. And um, I was struck in the when I first time I saw um, the killer that stalked New York, how little has changed as far as the public reaction to these kinds of things. In fact, the second time that I saw it, I wrote down um, some of the lines and you mentioned one of them, two cases don't make an, an epidemic. And then another one, why should the taxpayers foot the bill for this? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like nobody mentioned the taxpayers. Um, you know, everybody's getting the shot, same as today. Uh, there were two signs that went across the screen when people were getting vaccinated. Stop these vaccinations, vaccine is poison. And I think people are waving signs like that today. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and these fights over masks, I, it's really, it's amazing. And I don't know, just, it's, I don't know whether that's encouraging or discouraging that things haven't changed that much. Every time we, for me personally, when I first wrote about this film, it seemed to me that every time something new comes up, we have, humans have the same reactions to it, generally speaking. And it's um, it's like the collective memories of what happened before just vanish. And we go through the same thing all over again. In fact, the first time I noticed it was when I saw a PBS special about the flu pandemic of 1918. And that um, epidemic killed oh, millions of people around the world. It was sort of like the COVID-19 of its day. And um, I think it killed more people actually than COVID-19 has so far. Yeah. And Oh, go ahead, sorry. Well, anyway, in, in the PBS uh, documentary, there were people talking about it. And the only people in the documentary talking about it were people who lived through it, who had relatives that died. They were sharing their memories. And none of this gets handed down. And part of the documentary was addressed the fact, the will of humans to forget the bad, move ahead. And that, that again, I think is true of COVID-19. We want to put it behind us. We sure tried this summer. We want to put it behind us and move on with our lives. We, we just don't want to deal with it. Yeah, everybody is ready for this to be over. Everybody wants to be on the other side of it. Yes. And nobody really wants to do all of the things that we have to do to be able to be on the other side of it. Uh, and it it is, it is very frustrating. You know, you reminded me of something. Um, this doesn't have anything to do with the movie particularly, but um, that link I sent to you about Dr. Fauci. Oh, I gosh, I forgot to watch it. That's okay. That's okay. Um, but one of the reasons I sent it to you because because I I did want to bring it up because he talks um, with Seth Meyers about living in Brooklyn during the 1947 or 49, 1949 smallpox smallpox outbreak in New York City. He and his family were vaccinated. And he also talks, he, he was a, his father was a pharmacist. He owned his own pharmacy. And uh, Dr. Fauci and his brothers and sisters worked in the store sometimes with, uh, for their father. And Dr. Fauci's job was to deliver 
prescription medicines around Brooklyn in his Schwinn bicycle with a basket in the front. And there are two things about that that really struck me. Number one, I don't think they're going to let children run around New York City with prescription drug medications, <laughs> drug prescription yeah. medications on their bicycles today. That's number one. And number two, I thought to myself, uh, you know, it, it's interesting that he's um, has a direct connection to this movie that we're going to be talking about. But also the, the fact, I mean, th this interview was from March. I mean, it was March of this year. So it's um, I just I found it fairly recently, though. Um, but he also reminded me an awful lot of George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life because he, he as a, when he's a kid, he works in a delivering prescription medication um, for a pharmacist in Bedford, <laughs> Bedford Falls. And I thought, oh my goodness, our art imitating life, life imitating art. It just seemed all connected and it just it made Dr. Fauci look better to me. <laughs> He, yeah. Not only is he trying to save America, but he's just like George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> Who doesn't like George Bailey? I'm, everybody likes George Bailey, right? I do. <laughs> I, well, I don't think Mr. Potter liked him. Oh, yeah, right. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, you wouldn't have had a movie if there wasn't any friction somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, I just thought it was really interesting. I sent the link to too, because I knew you were going to see the movie, right? And so it, I just thought it was interesting to know that Dr. Fauci actually lived through the through the outbreak. Yeah, I will, the subject of this movie. I will. Uh, I will give it. I will give that a watch. I'm so sorry I didn't. And maybe I'll probably when this episode goes up, uh, I'll probably tweet that out and put that out if people listening want to watch it. Uh, I get. I mean, everybody listening has YouTube; they can find it. But I'll put a link out there so everybody can find it as well. Um, well, uh, I feel like, like, well, we've talked a lot, but I, I kind of feel like maybe there's more we could delve into this movie, but do you have any, any further notes? Because I'm kind of at the end of what I wrote down. Well, the only other thing that I wrote down really was that the narrator, okay, so he does have one useful point here that I thought was useful anyway. <laughs> he talks about um, that the, epide the smallpox epidemic wasn't the only thing that was, um, um, spreading in New York City, people were starting to panic. Mm. And that he made the point that when, when the drug supply was low and all the clinics were being closed down, people started to panic then. Because more people wanted the vaccine than didn't want it, apparently. And I thought that was interesting because there is that kind of dual nature to the COVID-19 thing. There are people like me who's like, I, I was, could hardly wait. I want you to be the first in line, you know, just give me the shot already, I'll feel better. And then, and then there are other people who don't want it at all. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it just drives yeah. me crazy. <laughs> we, don't have to we don't have to rehash that. I, I've, I've said it a lot. <laughs> okay. But, you know, one other point, though. Do you remember the, the, the news reporter who was such a pain in the butt in Panic in the Streets? Yeah. He played script, the lead investigator for the public health department. He was in this movie too. Oh, really? Yeah. I did not notice that that, gosh, I should have, I should have done a little bit more research on this movie. Well, I did, you know, he's not listed in the credits or that I could find, or, I mean, unless you like go to IMDB and click, you have to click on the link that shows 
you know, for more casting credits, look this, click this link or whatever it says. Um, but I recognized his face because for some reason he, you know, he just was so um, intrusive, I guess, in Panic in the Streets. And we would talked about him. And then when I was watching um, The Killer That Stalked New York, I'm like, hey, that's that same guy. Just a little minor point, but he has the same. No, that's that's actually that's a that's an interesting little. Uh... It's a tasty tidbit of trivia, as one of my friends used to say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just well, thought I'd throw that out there. No, that's that's, that's great. That's great. So uh, I guess if um, if we're done talking about the killer that stalked New York, which I kind of felt like I was a bit harsh on it. But I did like this movie. I, like I said, I watched it twice. I watched it right, as I, right before I went to bed and I got up and it, almost the first thing I did before anybody else was up and around is I watched the movie again. Um, so I, I enjoyed it. But uh, I think now it's time to take our final break and we'll be right back and we're just going to give our final goodbyes and where you can find us and, uh, and we'll say goodbye. Okay, <laughs> we'll be right back. All right, welcome back. And actually, we're about to take off. Um, before we go, though, I wanted to give um, Marianne a second to talk about her blog, Make Mine Film Noir. We've mentioned it a couple of times, and we, of course, mentioned it the last time you were on. But uh, tell people a little bit about it in case they didn't hear that episode. Where should they go, and, and what's, uh, what's it all about? Um, Make Mine Film Noir is, uh, they can find it online at makemindfilmnoir.blogspot.com. It's uh, Google, so if you put it in Google, Make Mine Film Noir should come up. And you can you know, search on the title of the blog too. And I update the blog about every two weeks, and I focus almost exclusively on film noir and neo-noir. Sometimes I branch out into noir literature, and that's fun too. I like to do noir literature and then the movies that are based on that particular work. And yeah, in the next I'm, couple, of, oh, go ahead, sorry. I'm so impressed, like looking at your blog, just how much stuff is there and how you've been able to keep it going. Like I've talked about that before, but you you really do have a lot of like things in there. A lot of stuff I've not heard of. Like I, you know, so a lot of times these blogs they're they're going through lists of like the hundred best or whatever and they're 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 kind of like you know the usual suspects of film noir but i just like when i first went to check out your site i was like wow there's like you have gone in depth on a bunch of stuff i've just i have never even heard of and there's a lot of stuff i've never heard of but in another sense it is also hard to find a movie i haven't heard at least something about and you've done it a lot well just wait till i know that like the next couple of uh, blog posts are going to be about films that I found by mere happenstance. I had never heard of either one of them before. And uh, one of them stars Sean Penn's father, which I, for some reason, I, that, that just flipped me out. I don't know why, but, um, you know, Leo Penn in film, film noir. Huh. So, so it should be interesting. No, that all sounds great. I, 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 I'm really looking forward to those. Everybody should check it out. Uh, Make Mine Film Noir. Uh, dot blogspot.com once again for people going there uh, as for us you can you can find or us it's me <laughs> like i say us I, I don't know why when i'm talking about the podcast i'm talking in the 
the royal we and the plural when it's just, it's me. Uh, as for me, if you want to follow the show, you can go ahead to Twitter and Instagram. It is at TwoHeadedPod. If you have a longer message you want to send me, I have a Gmail set up. It's TwoHeadedPodcast at gmail.com. And there's a Facebook page. That is the least updated of all of them, I think. But if you want to follow the show, you can go there. Um, also, I'd like to tell people, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get this. It's on iTunes, Spotify, all those. Wherever you're getting it, just go ahead and leave us a review and a rating. It does help in our, you know, getting the word out there. The reviews do, you know, get added to the algorithm, I guess, in a way. It gets more eyes on it. So um, if you would be so kind, go ahead and just kind of drop a line there. And uh, that's going to be it for the two of us here. Um, Marianne, thank you very much for coming back so soon. And we'll, we, I mean, we're already talking like, you're welcome back again. You're welcome back whenever. It doesn't have to just be the summer or film noir. We can we can talk about all that. I'm looking forward to to uh, coming back. Ah, great, great, and we're looking forward to having you back. So that's going to do it for us. Uh, until next week, stay cool, and we'll see you next week for another week and uh, another entry in Summer in the Shadows. <laughs>